Welcome to Call Your Girlfriend, a podcast for long-distance besties everywhere. I'm Amina Tuso. And I'm Anne Friedman. Hey, Anne Friedman. What's up this week? Um, wow. Today's guest is, well, I was going to say an icon, but that almost feels too superficial for the debt that we collectively owe Dr. Anita Hill. If you're not familiar with that name, Anita Hill made history in 1991 when she testified before Congress about the sexual harassment that she experienced while she was an aide to Clarence Thomas. He had been her supervisor at the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission um, and at the time in 91 was a nominee to the Supreme Court. You know, back when it was fairly novel that we nominate predators to the Supreme Court, but I digress. Anyway, she came forward because she was like, you know, maybe the United States Senate and the American people want to know about the fact that the Supreme Court nominee is abusive to his employees. And um, even that act of wanting to come forward is exceptional, um, knowing what we know both then and now about how survivors are treated. Um, And here's how it played out. So at the time, now President Joe Biden was head of the Senate Judiciary Committee. And uh, he was one of uh, a group of exclusively white men on that committee. And it's pretty clear in hindsight, people who have looked at the record and um, the number of other potential witnesses who came forward, that Biden seriously seriously mishandled the investigation into Anita Hill's accusations. Um, He didn't take public testimony from these other potential witnesses. And um, honestly, if you want to watch on YouTube, um, there are excerpts of these hearings available and it is um, harrowing uh, the tone and treatment that she faced um, when she was testifying. And, you know, the image of her in this um, turquoise suit, you know, a black woman telling her truth in front of an all-white, all-male committee is just impossible to unsee once you've seen it. You know, I mean, I know I said this before, but like hard to imagine just how difficult this was in 1991 before there were any real public narratives for talking about one's experience with harassment and abuse. So um, it's no wonder that after she testified, she was absolutely deluged by letters from survivors who saw themselves in her. And that response from other survivors has really shaped her life's work, which is using the power of the law and of her own position of public prominence to end gender-based violence. Um, A little coda to the story about Biden. In 2017, he um, said in an interview that he regretted how he had treated her, but it wasn't until 2019 when he was pretty much fully in presidential campaign mode that he actually reached out to her directly. And after their conversation, his campaign released a statement that, quote, he shared with her directly his regret for what she endured, which honestly makes my blood boil, like his regret for what she endured, like that is not an apology or um, an acceptance of accountability. So (laughs) that's just where that's just where I'm at. We um, talked about this um, 
when he was the sort of de facto nominee and we'll link in the show notes to our previous episodes about Biden and this issue. But anyway, and back to Anita Hill, she is not dwelling on the quality of Biden's apology. Um, These days, she is a professor of social policy, law and women's gender and sexuality studies at Brandeis University. And she has a new book out, which is what we're talking to her about today. The book is Believing, Our 30-Year Journey to End Gender Violence. And it's out on September 28th. We'll link it in the show notes. Here is Dr. Anita Hill. Professor Hill, thank you so much for being on the podcast. It's a real honor. Well, I am delighted to join you. I really think that maybe your book should be on the history shelf. I'm not sure where they're going to shelve it. But when I read it, I was like, oh, this needs to be like a history 101 type of book that, that college students are reading. You know, I, I mean, I try to do history and and contextualize everything that I do. And especially when we're talking about social problems and a problem as large as gender-based violence, I do like to give history. Racism, colonialism, you know, Jim Crow, slavery, all of these historical factors combine to disadvantage people who are already disadvantaged socially, economically, and politically in this country. And so we've got to take care of our own racism and transphobia and homophobia in order to really make sure that all women, all people, are, are covered when we start talking about eliminating, the solutions for eliminating the problem. How did you decide what to include and what to exclude? Because at a certain point, as you talk about all of these overlapping problems, you know, like sexism, racism, classism, it becomes like, it just becomes so broad and thorny. And I would love to know a little bit more about your process for deciding what belongs in this um, history of trying to end gendered violence? You know, I, I think what you're describing is as what someone said to me when I started working on issues of, of gender-based violence is that, you know, isn't this kind of like boiling the ocean? Mm-hmm. And in fact, it really is. Uh, what I understand is that gender-based violence really is about a range of behaviors. It's not simply about sexual harassment, which is, which is what I think people presume that I'll be talking about, uh, though, and I will. But it's also <laughs> about, it's about bullying. It's about harassment in schools. It's about rape. It's about uh, intimate partner violence. And when I say it's like boiling ocean, it, it is hard to get your brain around all of it. But I made a deliberate decision that that's what I was going to do because when I started hearing the stories of people coming forward who were identifying with my experience, I understood that they felt a connection and that there was a real connection. You have to connect those dots to see the whole of the problem because, in fact, you are not going to be able to solve any one of these problems until you are willing to address all of them. I want to come back to 
that in a moment. But I, I first want to talk about, you know, what you mentioned briefly there, which is that you have really become a repository for people's stories. And early in the book, you describe a little bit about what those first few months um, following your 1991 testimony were like. I don't know, I would just like to hear you talk about what surprised you about that time, maybe, and the genesis of the work that eventually became this book. Well, I can start with a, a story, and, and, a, and this is in the book, but I remember a very early on, there was a letter uh, from a woman who described herself as a school teacher. So ordinarily, I was very interested in what she had to say as a teacher myself. I, and she said to me in her letter that there will be waves of women behind you. And frankly, I didn't know exactly what that meant. I didn't even have a, a clue as to what was to come in the wake of that hearing, whether people would not step up, not come forward, uh, be intimidated, or whether she was right, that there would be waves. And she, it turns out that this, this teacher from Oregon was absolutely right. And the pundits, many of them, who said women will never step up now, were wrong. What I did anticipate hearing from women who had problems uh, in the workplace, sexual harassment and assault in the workplace, what I didn't anticipate hearing was stories of incest, rape and sexual assault in all kinds of locations, intimate partner violence stories, stories of sexual extortion and psychological abuse within relationships. And really, I didn't expect to hear from men. Mm. Not only, you know, in 1991 and the years, you know, soon after, but for the past 30 years. I also, when I heard those stories, I'm not sure that I expected that they would sound so similar in terms of the way that friends, family, and the general public react. And so... It, it occurred to me that at the heart of the problem of, in all of these different behaviors, there's a core that we need to start to think of them together, not as simple one-off problems, not as personal issues as so many people would like to say, but really by looking at the whole and looking at this collective human cost we would begin to understand the urgency of eliminating gender-based violence. When we started to see how many people were affected, how corrosive the problem is, how many families are affected and communities, and really ultimately how our national economy is affected, we would then see how ending it will benefit everyone. You know, one thing that you write about in the book is how important it is to recognize that gendered violence is not some like distant or abstract thing. It's happening in real time to specific people we know and love. And it strikes me that, you know, the flip side of that is, at least for me personally, harder to accept, which is that it is perpetrated by people I know and potentially like care for or am invested in. And I think that that 
poses a really different kind of accountability question. And I think in a way, um, <laughs> I don't know, I'm, tr I'm trying to talk my way to a question here that's about the vastness of the ocean, but also about these specific painful points and opportunities that we have to act with maybe not all the information or resources we would want. And I'm curious about, you know, for you, not so much when it comes to supporting a specific person, you know, who's been on the receiving or experiencing end of violence, but what have you done in cases where you know or suspect that you are connected with someone who is a perpetrator? You know, how do you, how do you move forward in that, in that situation? You know, I am concerned about accountability for individual perpetrators but in believing what I challenge uh, society as well as our leaders to do is to look at how systems are locking the problem in place. How, you know, we can talk about whether you know, Harvey Weinstein should go to jail. But what I really want to talk about is how did our systems fail us? when we realize that for years he was not held accountable for behaviors that had been reported decades before. And how did, how did the system work to protect him from accountability? Because I think that's how we're going to get at such a big problem. We can keep talking about individual cases, but behind every one of those individual cases is a system that is not working to protect people from the problem. Mm -hmm. That's a real catch-22 of activism, I think, about where, you know, we... On this show, we talk a lot about how these problems are systemic, but the truth is that means we are all also part of these systems. And, you know, um, for to take one example, you know, lately there's been a lot of criticism of the Time's Up movement coming from survivors who say that the organization is now more invested in cozying up to powerful people rather than holding them accountable for their role in this system that you describe. And um, I wonder if you have thoughts on that, um, you know, holding other activists accountable. The bottom line is that we all have to take responsibility. You know, I ask people, you know, how many times have you growing up heard somebody respond that they're tell them that their situation is not so bad? When Someone talks about a problem about, of gender-based violence. The response is to minimize it or dismiss it or deny it. We do that as a culture. And what we are not understanding is that we are grooming people to accept bad behavior. We're grooming people who are potential victims and who are vulnerable to dismiss their own pain. And we're grooming the people who might be abusers to accept that bad behavior is just what they do. But then there's that third group of observers 
who are also being groomed to accept. We're part of the problem because it has been built into the way we think about the problem of violence against women and girls in particular all of our lives. But I do break down the problem um, in terms of some solutions that I think people can see more readily. But uh, before we get to, to those yeah, solutions. Yeah, let's talk about those. I want to talk <laughs> no, about sorry. those solutions. But I need to kind of fill in one more spot. First of all, we forget that there are costs to this behavior. And in fact, we don't even begin to measure what those costs are. Senators Warren and Gilderbrand and Murphy and Feinstein wrote to a government office asking for a calculation of the cost of sexual harassment to the economy. Mm-hmm. And you would think that you know our government collects a lot of data. Mm-hmm. You would think that they would have this in their collection at their ready. And the answer that these senators got back was, well, there is no place that we could find the data to support this. Now, why don't we have that information? Because we haven't taken the problem seriously enough to measure it. And if you don't measure something, you can't solve it. And you do measure what you care about. And I appreciate, I really appreciate that as um, something to have as a giant blinking light in front of us as we start to talk about solutions. Right. You know, the, the blinking light is also for me that we need leadership that is committed to ending gender-based violence leadership that actually believe that women are worth this effort and leadership that is willing to state that this problem rises to a public crisis problem. Mm. Can you think of any other problem in society that touches on all of our institutions, public and private, our schools, our workplaces, you know, schools by schools, I mean, from elementary to college, our workplaces, our, our courts, our uh, House and Senate, our military, every one of those institutions has been implicated in scandals around gender-based violence of some form, and, and really of every form. That screams out to me that we have a public crisis. mentioned leadership and I really, you know, we we devoted a couple of episodes uh, to this podcast um, to President Biden's record on these issues, you know, his treatment of 
you, but also the Violence Against Women Act and some other, you know, really just looking at his whole record. And Mm -hmm. I, I raise it because, you know, you said we can't do this without leadership. And I'm wondering what your views are um, of his leadership on these issues, you know, in the past and today? Well, I do understand that he has put in uh, the White House an office for addressing gender equity in this country. And that is a great start. But I think he can do more. I believe, given the fact that all of our institutions are implicated, There needs to be a White House effort that demands that policies be adopted to address the issue of gender violence. That's just one of my suggestions. Mm. But if I wanted to to start talking about solutions, you know, I would start with let's measure. Let's measure and investigate. And it has to also take place in, in our private institutions, organizations, corporations need to be able to tell you as a public, they're publicly held corporations in particular, what the level of abuse in their, in their organizations actually is. So measuring is one thing. Secondly, I think we, we need to provide and this is like a basic thing. And all of our systems, all of our institutions should have clear reporting options. And that's not been the case. I mean, it sounds like, oh, that's easy. But it has <laughs> not been the case. Many, uh, many uh, organizations have no reporting options. Many have uh, reporting options that are obtuse. And no one can figure out what they are. And they, and they especially do not reach low-income workers. The further mm-hmm. you are away from the top of an organizational chart, the less likely you are to even know that these, these uh, options exist and how to navigate them. Uh, we need, as I was saying, the government to look at all of our, through all of our agencies, and to deliberately address what they need to do to help people who are victimized by gender-based violence, whether it is providing paths to economic security for them or to providing housing or just our educational opportunities. And I think that's where I'm, you know, leadership political leadership really needs to get together and stop making this a partisan issue. We need judges that understand that the civil rights laws were meant to do away with cultural excuses for abuse. The goal of the civil rights laws was not to protect corporations from accountability. It was to make sure corporations are accountable. And I guess finally, we need to restore government's role in providing protections through the Violence Against Women's Act. You mentioned Joe Biden and the Violence Against Women's Act, and he was instrumental in its passage. Um, 
there were women in the house, Patricia Schroeder for one, who oh. was, you know, the engineer. Um, she and Patsy Mink and Eleanor Holmes Norton, all of whom had backgrounds dealing with issues of, of violence and gender discrimination were truly orchestrating the, the, the um, data needed to support the Violence Against Women's Act. The Violence Against Women's Act was gutted in 2000. Now is the time with the information we have, we need to make sure that Congress takes that role seriously and it begins to build back into the law, strengthening the law and providing protection for victims and survivors. I want to ask you a question about more recent history. Um, I was reading some interviews you gave in 2018 and 2019 when you spoke about how the moment of widespread attention to Me Too stories presented this huge opportunity. And with a few years hindsight, I'm wondering if you think we've collectively made the most of that opportunity. That's yet to be determined. (laughs) Uh, The short answer to that is, until the systems change, we haven't made the most of it. Mm. We have been affirmed in our position that this is a huge problem, that it needs more attention, that it it is so bad, that it's not normal or natural just because it's so prevalent. So we've made that very clear, I think, uh, in those 19 million hashtag posts uh, under Me Too, we've made that very clear. But we still haven't seen the structural changes that will build into place what we have learned mm. about how to make things change. And I also want to ask about this period we live in right now when we have yet to see this kind of systemic structural change that you know we've we've been talking about for the last half hour because you know obviously there are people who are um, living with the pain of experiencing this kind of violence in in real time you know um, it's not like it's not like that can be deferred until a moment when the whole system is fixed and you know you're someone who has a bit of experience with the pain and disappointment and difficulty of not seeing someone who's perpetrated violence against you brought to justice. And I'm wondering if, you know, those folks are listening, what you would tell them about moving forward in this extremely flawed moment that we live in right now. I believe that we need to be doing both. We need to be fixing the systems and the structures and addressing the cultural change as well as providing resources, the lack of resources available specifically for intimate partner violence sufferers. So we know that the numbers are, and these are pre-pandemic numbers, 10 million or so individuals will be victimized. But what we often don't think about is 38% of those every year, 
10 million, 38% will be left homeless. Mm. Our shelters were overloaded. All of our resources were overtaxed during the pandemic. And you're right, those individuals can't wait. And I'm not expecting that we should ask them to wait. We got to get out of our mind this cultural excuse that we use, oh, it's a personal problem or an individual problem, which lends itself to victim blaming. And therefore, the public should not be absorbing any more costs to address it. You know, that's one of the things we've got, we've, we've got to address. But getting those resources to where they can work and actually directly benefit people is absolutely an imperative. So what are some of the difficult ways that these big systemic problems play out in a really personal, immediate way? One of the the, uh, questions that I get too frequently is that uh, from, it's from uh, young black women who want to know how they can come forward and complain about gender-based violence when the person that they're complaining about is a black male. Um, They worry about their own safety, but they also worry about shaming the race and harming black men generally. And there's this conflict that if you don't get rid of racism, if you don't uh, attend to the problem of racism in that situation, you're not going to be able to help this young, these young women uh, to protect them from gender-based violence. Um, I also hear from young black men who say, you know, I really believe in what you're doing um, and I want to support you. But these young men say, I'm afraid of being targeted and accused because I am a black male. I'm vulnerable because I'm a black male. I know our history of false accusations. And so again, what we have is this history of racism that is locking into place bad behavior that our young people are trying to get out of. I don't have the answer to all of those questions, but it, you know, it calls, calls for systemic change, of course, but it also calls for caring and understanding about how gender-based violence is experienced depending on individuals' different identities. Mm. And so, we have to do more to think about that. And the same can be said of other communities. Oh, I've heard from uh, people who are gay, who are saying, you know, I can't raise a complaint because people already look at people in my community. You know, the, the gaze is on us. That critical gaze is on us because of our sexual identity. And so I... 
I have to be quiet in order that I don't perpetuate some stereotype uh, about uh, gay people being abusive. Um, and, and so we've got to, we've got to do more, uh, and deeper understanding, um, to, to really get to the problems of everyone that's experiencing gender violence. And I'm curious about what you, what you say to those people in real time. Like, what do you say to a young black woman who comes to you with that question? Well, we, we very often deal with uh, the, uh, a community wade. And what I do is I try to refer them to groups of, of, of survivors who have been working through these issues. Um, you know, you know in, in the book, I talk about uh, Beverly Guy Sheftall, mm. who has been working uh, with these issues. She's a professor at Spelman College. Um, and she's been working on these issues in historically black colleges and universities. And she, she speaks more, more eloquently about how we can approach these problems um, as a community problem that can bring together men and women who want change. One last question for you, and this is something I found myself wondering about as um, as I read your book, which is um, how do you care for yourself and where do you find support as you do this work, which is, you know, as we've discussed, you know, a difficult long game. Um, where where are you finding, you know, resilience and and joy and support in your own life? Well, I have uh, numerous resources. You know, I find support. You know, I, I, I honestly find comfort in doing the work. Mm. The, the that and engaging in, with my students who are doing work, and they are so much more informed and more creative than I was at their age about how to get to it. Um, that makes that gives me hope. And inspiration. Um, I am very privileged to have a wonderful family who supports me uh, and colleagues. You know, I, I always say you know, that in, in, in so many ways, as awful as things were in 1991, I had so many things going for me that many survivors, many victims just don't have. And, and that, you know, I, 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 I can't, I can't give all of that to, to everyone. Although I think with cultural change, we can begin to, hmm. but what I can do is to make sure that they have resources that they need and, that, and, and argue for the funding of those resources, which is also part of Violence Against Women's Act, as well as looking forward and taking the long view, changing our culture and our structures to show our support 
for them and our belief in their value. I love that. Um, I really appreciate this book and all of your work and uh, your time today. It's, it's really been an honor to have you on the podcast. Well, I thank you so much and your questions uh, <laughs> because this, this is a message that, that I think can change the world. It can change the world if it gets in the right hands. And, and we have the courage to act on it. Anita Hill's new book is called Believing, Our 30-Year Journey to End Gender Violence. I will see you on the internet, my love. See you on the internet. You can find us many places on the internet, callyourgirlfriend.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher. We're on all your faves. Subscribe, rate, review, you know the drill. Call us back, leave a voicemail at 714-681-2943. That's 714-681-CYGF. You can email us, callyrgf at gmail.com. We're on Instagram and Twitter at callyrgf. And you can buy our book, Big Friendship, anywhere you buy books, but we are really partial to independent bookstores. Our theme song is by Robin. Original music composed by Carolyn Pennypacker-Riggs. Our logos are by Kanisha Sneed. Our producer is Jordan Bailey. This podcast is executive produced by Gina Delvacke.